0: Good morning, Taff. You know, it's been a couple months since I've been here preaching to you. And this certainly isn't what I expected when I was going to come back after a little hiatus, that I would be alone in my house in front of a camera with some cats walking around me. They'll probably be on my lap at some point in time today. And you at home in front of your screens, whether it's a TV screen or, or a computer screen or a cell phone screen. This wasn't the way I anticipated coming back, but it's where we find ourselves, isn't it? But I just want to thank you for supporting the church and those that had been preaching in my absence. You know that I had a couple trials and some other things going on that I took some time off, but I'm happy to be back. And as I was preparing this sermon series, I thought about changing it based upon what we're going through, but I actually think this series that I'm starting today plays into what's going on in our world. It's actually a, a series that was based on a book that I read called It's Not Over, and with, well, without further ado, let, let me just hop on into it, okay? I want to start by telling you a story of a of a young man who had a very... Hard life. You see, he was born in 1890. He grew up on a a farm in Indiana. His dad died when he was only five years old. He dropped out of school in the sixth grade. He left home when he was only 12 years old. Life was certainly hard. And when he was 16 years old, he lied about how old he was so that he could join the army. But that didn't last long. He was discharged four months after joining the Army. He worked on the railroad for a while, but he was fired from that for insubordination and fighting. In 1915, he actually became an attorney in Arkansas. Now, this was back in the days when you didn't have to take the bar exam and go to law school. But he didn't last very long as an attorney. You see, he was disbarred. Because he got into a fist fight with his own client in, in the middle of court in front of the judge. Not very attorney-like. He sold insurance for a while. He was a tire salesman. He ran a ferry service. He even sold gas lamps. All of those businesses, though, were unsuccessful. In the 1930s, he opened up a combination motel restaurant, but it wasn't successful either. Finally, he decided to open up a gas station. Now, this gas station also sold food. In fact, during that time, he actually shot a competitor of his. He married his mistress, and the gas station, at one point, burned down. Life Was hard. He rebuilt that gas station, but in 1955 he turned 65 years of age. And he realized that he did not have a dime savings toward retirement. 65 years of age and no retirement. So he did what might not have been, for many of us in looking at it, a very wise decision, but he sold everything he had in a last-ditch effort to make some money so that he could retire. He sold everything, and he started to drive from town to town, and he sold his chicken recipe to restaurants for five cents a chicken. You may have figured out who I'm talking about, but if you haven't, his name was Harlan Sanders. Colonel Sanders, and the restaurant that became Kentucky Fried Chicken. You see, he got that nickname, Colonel, not from his time in the military. That wasn't very successful. He got that from his charitable work that he did. In 1964, nine short years after he started driving from town to town, selling his chicken recipe, he sold KFC. For $2 million. That'd be the equivalent to $15 million today. Nice little retirement package. At the time he sold it, there were 600 locations. Now there's over 5,000 locations. Not bad for a man who was wholly unsuccessful most of his life. He's described as scrappy, hot-tempered, and he loved... To use four-letter words. In a hard life, but in the end, it turned out all right. Heavenly Father, Lord, thank you for bringing us together today. Even though we're not physically together, we are together as a church family. Help us to open our minds and our hearts to the message that you would bring us. We ask this In Jesus' name, amen. So Colonel Sanders had many chances, many reasons to give up on his dreams. You see, in my experience, that's the moment when most dreams die for so many people. When a crisis hits, we know about crises right now. When a crisis hits, when they don't understand how they can possibly move forward... Most people respond by giving up. Or they settle for something smaller, something easier. Their dreams are then buried in what-ifs and thoughts of what might have been. Sanders, though, didn't give up. He kept pressing on. And so can you. That's what this series is all about. Colonel Sanders' story is a great illustration of what I'm going to refer to in this sermon series as a God-sized dream. Let me give you a definition. A God-sized dream is a compelling vision, a goal, or a longing that drives us towards something way too big for us to accomplish On our own. It's a dream or a yearning that we feel deep inside. Usually it's something that we deeply desire to achieve or to experience. Yet we have absolutely no idea how to bring it about. God-sized dreams are those desires inside of us that simply can't or won't be ignored. When we pay attention to them, spend time pursuing them, we feel exhilarated. We feel joy and purpose, like we're doing exactly what it is that we were created to do. On the other hand, when we try to ignore our God-sized dreams, or we move away from them, it burns like... An indigestion of the soul. So what is, what is your God-sized dream? This series is all about discovering and living out your God-sized dream. Which begs the question, why are most people not living out their God-sized dream? They're they're focused on who they are instead of who God is. You see, we know that we're inadequate to achieve them on our own. So we often press them down instead of turning to God for help. So let me give you four characteristics of a God-sized dream. The first characteristic is that God-sized dreams begin with a need. Let me tell you about a Bible character that fulfills this. It's Nehemiah. Nehemiah was an Old Testament prophet. He was actually the cupbearer to the king, which is an important position because he tasted the king's drink before the king did, in case it was poisoned Nehemiah would die and not the king. He's one of the most trusted officials to the king. Let me read you what it says in Nehemiah chapter 1, verses 1 through 3. It says, In late autumn, in the month of Kislev, in the twentieth year of King Artaxerxes' reign, I was at the fortress of Susi, Susa. And, and I, one of my brothers, came to visit me with some other men who had just arrived from Judah. I asked them about the Jews who had returned there from captivity no about how things were going in Jerusalem. They said to me, Things are not going well for those who returned to the province of Judah. They are in great trouble and disgrace. The wall of Jerusalem has been torn down, and the gates have been destroyed by fire imagine imagine the horror and pain in Nehemiah's heart when he hears that the walls and the gates of Jerusalem had been destroyed his hometown was defenseless that report it from Judah it broke something inside of Nehemiah that was the moment that he thought That's not okay. Something has to be done. You see, when God breaks your heart over a specific need, it's often the very first sign that God's planting a dream inside of you. Now, that need can either be a need within you or it can be a need around you. See, those dreams, they can be found within us. Maybe it's finding confidence or maybe pursuing a passion full-time. But they can also be things around us. Maybe it's ending world hunger or paying off debt. The second characteristic of a God-sized dream is that God-sized dreams create open doors. So Nehemiah Waited, And he asked for a door to be opened. In verse 4 of chapter 1, it says this, When I heard this, I sat down and wept. In fact, for days I mourned, fasted, and prayed to the God of heaven. But when that door opened, God opened it, in a big way. Listen to what it says in chapter 2 of Nehemiah. It says, early the following spring, in the month of Nisan, during the twentieth year of King Artaxerxes' reign, I was serving the king his wine. I had never before appeared sad in his presence. So the king asked me, why are you looking so sad? You don't Look sick to me. You must be deeply troubled. Then I was terrified. But I replied, Long live the king. How can I not be sad? For the city where my ancestors are buried, it's in ruins. The gates have been destroyed by fire. And the king asked, Well, How can I help you? So with a prayer to the God of heaven, Nehemiah replies, If it please the king, and if you are pleased with me, your servant, send me. Send me to Judah to rebuild the city where my ancestors are buried. You see, You don't have to force your way into God's plan. You just need to move in his direction when he opens that door. Sure, you might be thinking, but how do I know? How do I know which opportunities are God opening a door and which are just happenstance? How do I know when to jump and move? You see, as soon as Nehemiah became aware of the need in Jerusalem, he prayed and he fasted. In other words, he drew close to God and trusted in God's timing. So when God opened that door for a conversation with the king, Nehemiah was ready. The third characteristic of a God-sized dream is God-sized dreams match your abilities and your experiences. Also in Nehemiah chapter 2, we read this. I arrived in Jerusalem. Three days later, I slipped out during the night, taking only a few others with me. The city officials did not know I had been out there or what I had been doing, for I had not yet said anything to anyone about my plans. I had not yet spoken to the Jewish leaders, the priests, the nobles, the officials, or anyone else in the administration. But now, now I said to them, You know very well what trouble we are in. Jerusalem lies in ruins. Its gates have been destroyed by fire. Let us rebuild the wall of Jerusalem and end this disgrace. Then I told them about how how the gracious hand of God had been on me and about my conversation with the king. And they replied at once, yes, let's rebuild the wall. So they began the good work. See, God-sized dreams typically align well with our abilities and life experiences. That's why we often find fulfillment and purpose when we pursue those dreams. We're doing exactly what God has uniquely created us to do. So what are you good at? What comes Easily to you. Are you good at working with your hands? Do you like math? Are you a natural leader? Do you love to write? Do you enjoy initiating things? Do you love animals? Do you love kids? Do you enjoy teaching? What is it that you are good at? God has uniquely created you with passions and talents and abilities. You were created on purpose for a purpose. The final characteristic of a God-sized dream is that God-sized dreams create opposition. You see, when the idea of planting Triad Adventist Fellowship began, there was opposition. There were people who didn't like the way we were going to have a church service. There were people who didn't think it would work. There was opposition Opposition, but God opened the doors. We will face opposition when we chase our dreams. Nehemiah chapter four says this. But when Sanballat and Tobiah and the Arabs and the Ammonites and the Ashdodites heard that the work was going ahead, and that the gaps in the wall of Jerusalem were being repaired, they were furious. They all made plans to come and fight against Jerusalem and throw us into confusion. But we prayed. We prayed to our God and guarded the city day and night to protect ourselves. Don't be concerned. Don't Be concerned when you are facing opposition. Be concerned when your dreams are so small that there's no reason for there to be opposition. If you know your God-sized dream, write it down. In the same way that I sometimes walk around looking for my phone that I think I have lost and realize that my phone is actually in my hand, we often try extra hard to discover dreams that aren't even hiding. We sometimes ignore God's given dreams, God-sized dreams, because they don't seem spiritual enough or important enough, or maybe they seem too simple, too obvious. Let me challenge you on this. You are responsible for being faithful to the dreams God has called you to steward. Don't sit on the sidelines wondering where your dream is, when like Nehemiah, God has placed it right in front of you. You're not too old for a God-sized dream. You're not too young for a God-sized dream. You're not a collection of yesterday's mistakes, and you haven't used up all of your potential. You are God's masterpiece. He has uniquely created you to accomplish your specific purpose. So find your God-sized dream. Don't be afraid of any opposition that comes. Search for it. Pray and fast and be ready. Be ready to move forward when God opens that door. Heavenly Father, Lord, I just want to thank you. I want to thank you for giving us God-sized dreams. Help us to not be afraid of any opposition. And help us to realize that we can't do it on our own. It's only through your strength that we can accomplish these dreams. That's why they're a God-sized dream. Too often we focus on human-sized dreams, but help us to embrace that God-sized dream. To fast and to pray and to be ready. To be ready when you open up that door. Give us. Give us. A God-sized dream. In Jesus' name, amen.